filled with teaching, truths and issues that matter. Bernie Diamond's A Different Perspective, part of Night Vision each weeknight. Details at vision.org.au. 2020, bringing a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Weekdays on UCB's Vision Radio Network. Find out more at vision.org.au. Well, great to have you along with us here on this Monday edition of 2020. And what a great topic to be talking about through this coming hour. Whatever you do, make some time to keep at least one ear glued to our conversation. We'll be talking about the life of the author... Justin Gardner, who has written a book called Crime Son, and it's a story about healing of the brokenhearted and how you might be able to glean some things about reaching out to the brokenhearted. Uh, we're going to be talking to Justin. Uh, Justin, he's had, a, uh, as many people have had, an unhappy childhood uh, that's marked by abuse, and violence, rejection, a life of selling drugs, doing drugs even by as young as the age of 12. Uh, by the age of 14, out of school, out of home, living a life out of control on the streets in Melbourne. Well, let's hear Justin's story today, and I want to invite you to be a part of our conversation. You can call and be a part of our conversation. You might identify with some of the things we're talking about today, and particularly when it comes to the transformation that takes place in the heart when someone has an encounter with Jesus Christ, reaching out to the brokenhearted, healing and mending the broken heart. Justin Gardner, great to have you with us. Welcome to 2020. Thank you. Great to be here. Well, Justin, your book itself, Crime Son, everywhere you go, uh, people are recognising that you are the person who is on the front cover. And as we were just saying before uh, coming on air today, uh, people don't recognise you these days. It's a very different Justin Gardner to what you were as a child and into your years as a young man. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, The front cover is a picture of me that really, uh, I suppose, it it really uh, grasps the past of um, how I was, how I dressed, how I looked. And, um, yeah, and when people see me standing there, it's really a before and after, you know, right before them. Well, throughout this hour, we want to talk about your story. It is a story of transformation. These days, you're the senior pastor of a church in Hoppers Crossing in Melbourne. It's called the Destiny Centre Christian Church. And uh, it's a great church. And it's a church that uh, really, uh, there are a lot of people that identify with your story who are a part of your congregation. Yeah, that's right. There's, um, I think everyone identifies with uh, brokenness of some sort or being rejected or overlooked. And um, so, yeah, um, I think that people really identify with my story, um, but from all different walks of life, but similar, similar things happening, I suppose, on the inside of their hearts. Uh, let's talk about your story now. Coming back to those early years in your childhood. Now, Broken-heartedness starts, for most people, I guess, when we're in our childhood years. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think for me, um, you know, growing up in the family that I did, I didn't know anything different. Um, you know, a, an abusive family, an alcoholic father and uh, a gambler, so a very violent man. And um, I was the only boy of the family, five five sisters. So I think just having five sisters, I, I felt like I, I was sort of uh, didn't fit in just for a start. Just <laughs> it, The problem started there, I think. <laughs> And your father was uh, quite a perfectionist. Yeah, absolutely. My father was in the Merchant Navy. He used to be away uh, months at a time. And then when he was home, um, he was, uh, yeah, he would always wear suits and he, he was well-dressed. And as a family, we were from a, you know, a poor family. And um, we, we, you know, my mother used to walk with the five kids. Um, she'd walk to the Salvation Army stores kilometres. 
and she'd get woolen jumpers, walk all the way home, and then she'd pull them apart and then knit clothes to fit us. So that was how it was. My dad was well-dressed and, and we, we battled. Your dad was well-dressed. You battled. And because there were issues with alcohol, uh, there were issues with gambling uh, within your family, uh, those are the sorts of things that put kids at a disadvantage. Yeah, no, pro- no, yeah, no doubt about that. I, As a kid, I, I remember back um, never knowing if we were going to still have our house or never knowing if we were still going to have uh, food and those sorts of things. My mum always worked her hardest. She would work cleaning jobs at night and all sorts of things just to put food on the table. But there was always that feeling inside of um, not knowing if um, we're going to have anything. And unfulfilled promises. Uh, I'm just thinking of one story that you've written there in your book about uh, about having that brand new bicycle. It didn't really come off the way you had hoped. No, my father... When he would win at the races, gambling on the horses, he would he would make all sorts of promises and usually drunk too because if he'd win, he'd be at home, he would be happy and drinking a lot and make promises. And one of the promises was, um, for me, is a, a new bike. And I remember telling all my friends because we didn't have anything. I remember telling all my friends, my dad's going to get me a new bike. And, and um, anyway, he lost on the next set of races and lost all the money so the promise didn't get kept and I got an old second-hand bike and became, you know, uh, mockery, you know, mocked by the children. And, of course, uh, the other story that I recall from your book uh, where you were playing football, and uh, because you're Victorian, uh, for people around the nation, uh, you're playing uh, Australian rules football, and you'd actually got the uh, the second-place trophy. It just wasn't quite good enough for Dad. No, that's right. And um, my father was the sort of man that um, even very young, as, as young as I can remember, he always made me swim. So in, say, grade four, he would make me swim 30 or 40 laps of the indoor pool before school. Every morning he would time me. If I didn't get the times that he thought, he would withdraw his love and put me down and say I'll never be anything. So the same was with football. I started football at a young age, and uh, after every match, it'd be the same thing. I don't run fast enough. I, I don't mark good enough. Those sorts of things. And then at the end of the year, when they had best and fairest night with pies and and free soft drinks, for me coming from a poor family, that's what I was there for. I didn't expect to win anything at all because I'd never had anything say anything anyone say anything positive over my life. And then yeah, second runner up, um, I win a, the second trophy, and I lost by a vote. Driving home in the car, my dad was very silent. He didn't talk much. He used to permeate aggression, so he didn't talk around my dad unless you were spoken to. And I'm holding this trophy, and um, and I looked over to him like I wanted his acknowledgement just to say, well done. And he looked over at me, and he could see, I'm sure, what I was looking for, his approval from him. And he said to me, you lost by one vote um, tonight and became second runner-up. I said, yeah, I know, Dad, and look at the trophy I got. And he said, let me tell you why you lost by one vote is because I voted for the other guy because he was better than you. Mm-hmm. That's tough, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, look, when you have those childhood experiences, so those things that shape us uh, from our younger years, when you finally got to your teenage years and you thought uh, a bit more freedom here, you took that freedom to uh, some levels of extreme and uh, you began to get in with the wrong crowd. Yeah, well, I, I even as a young child, I, I think I've been stealing and had behavioural problems ever ever since I can remember. You know, back, I just don't ever remember anything but that, always being in trouble. And I suppose falling with the wrong crowd, falling in with older people, um, yeah, my mum and dad ended up divorced and um, so it was mum, five sisters and me with lots of problems, lots of problems at school and 
And, um, yeah, so I think from there it was probably hanging around with older people and looking for probably mentors um, that led me down the wrong track, I would say. So you were using drugs by the age of 12 and even selling drugs by the age of 12. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'd I'd been drinking alcohol before then because my dad was an alcoholic, so... He would say to me, can you get me a beer from the fridge? And when you get one, you can have a, a sip on the way back. But you can imagine with an alcoholic, I'm going to the fridge all day. So even as a, a little kid, I was drinking. Um, and then when my mum and dad split up, I was drinking maybe about 11 or something like that without my father being around. Started doing drugs at 12 and selling drugs at 12. Let's get into the more serious uh, issues. When you get into your mid to late teenage years, you had an interest in martial arts. And martial arts opened up some doors for you because of the personalities that you met when you were uh, doing your martial arts. Yeah, my mum started me off at martial arts for probably discipline when I was a kid and probably for those male role models. She would have been looking for that for me, um, but that probably didn't work for me. I, I had a lot of rage inside and, um, yeah, but um, I ended up homeless at 14, out of home, out of school, I was looking at going to a youth prison and um, my martial arts, so I ended up homeless and my martial arts instructor that I was connected to at the time, he took me in off the street instead of me going to a youth prison. Okay, so doing martial arts and already having those issues with anger and uh, and violence, uh, for some people uh, they say, well, martial arts is a little bit therapeutic, you know, it helps you get your anger out. Uh, is that really the case? Oh, I think so. I, I would say so. But with the right mentors, you know, the, if you if you if you're training martial arts, you, your hands and your your legs end up becoming weapons, and it's what happens outside then who you're mixing with, what sort of mentors, what sort of role models. Like any weapon that could be used to protect or to hurt somebody. I still train martial arts today. I still train kickboxing. And today, I would say, as a pastor, with the sorts of pressures that we face, I would say that um, it's very healthy for me to, um, you know, just stay fit and, and any kind of feelings I deal with it with the bag, me and Jesus. Okay, but your martial arts instructor had some... Other connections too, which yeah, led you in different directions. Yeah, he he would have been a, a you know a pretty respected uh, figure in the uh, criminal world, and um, he you know had a lot of people that feared him, and um, he would um, run bounces in nightclubs all over Melbourne and all the security. So when he took me in, fourteen years old, I've been going to nightclubs ever since then um, at fourteen, and um, I'd be yeah I'd be up all night. And I'd sleep all day. That's sort of like a vampire. That's how I lived. And, of course, that is an introduction into uh, moving in a direction that these days you would advise young people is not a good direction to move in. In fact, uh, being involved with the nightclub scene, uh, with the bouncers, uh, with those connections to the underworld, the underbelly world in Melbourne, those sorts of things. So for some people, there's a romanticism about that, particularly for young men. It's like, uh, you know, the boy's great adventure, becoming involved in the underworld. But there's a dark side to it. Yeah, for sure. I think I think Australians are very unique people. Um, I think they seem to celebrate their, um, you know, criminals, starting from Ned Kelly right down, you'll see the Underbelly series and the different things on TV now. They celebrate them from Chopper Reed uh, to these people. They seem to celebrate them, talk lots about them and, and paint good pictures of wealth and um, power and um, prestige and excitement. But at the end of the day is that that would be the minority and the inside life of them is not on show, how they live in fear and um, can't trust anybody and have lots of problems. 
so yeah, I think it's a, a romantic type, um, you know, outlook people have of it. But at the end of the day, is all of my friends that I grew up and and some of the ones that were in the original Underbelly series, a lot of the main characters, they're all dead. Majority of my friends are dead. I I spent most of my life, even when I became a Christian, for the first um, five or so years, just attending friends' funerals. So I'm yeah, maybe one of the ones that are alive from that scene. When you talk about those characters from the original Underbelly series, uh, are there any, any names you can mention? Uh, or is it uh, there are some connections there that uh, perhaps you can't mention? Oh, well, there's lots that I can't mention. But, um, you know, I, I grew up with uh, Andrew Veneman and Dino Dibra and, and those sorts of guys, another guy, PK. They're, they're, all, they're all dead now. Um, but yeah, we grew up as, you know, uh, friends and, and kids. We used to hang out together and, um, but I suppose, you know, with the different uh, drugs that people start using, it starts changing the way they are. It starts changing the game. No one trusts anybody in a criminal world. Um, at the end of the day is, um, everyone's paranoid. No one trusts anybody and you actually may exist together, but you don't grow in trust together. Is it the case that people who are immersed in the criminal world, uh, they have a facade which looks cool, which looks calm, which looks like they have it all together? When you look at that person, uh, do you see the cool, calm person with it all together or are you seeing a little deeper and recognising what we want to talk about this hour, a broken-hearted person? Oh, no doubt. No doubt. I think, I think uh, you know, in that world, what you have, um, what you possess, what you wear, it's, it says to people success. But at the end of the day is everybody's fighting something on the inside. And I think that um, if you scratch beneath the surface a little bit, you'll find that people are running and they run into security blankets, whether it's um, sex or alcohol or drugs. There's always something to, you know, deal with the pain the best they can and uh, instead of having it removed. It's Neil Johnson with you on 2020. Our special guest this hour is Justin Gardner, the author of the book called Crime Son, uh, also a senior pastor in Melbourne. We're talking about Justin's story, and we're talking today about the brokenhearted, and perhaps you are the brokenhearted. You're identifying with those things that Justin is sharing with us today. Uh, Justin, one of the titles of one of your chapters in your book is called Mean Streets. Uh, my dad always used to say, uh, you know, son, it's a tough world out there. And uh, when you were outside of home, in fact, uh, you'd left home at a young age, you quickly discovered that those streets are pretty mean. Yeah, absolutely. I um, Even as a kid, I there was lots of violence on the streets. So I would, um, I would hang out in amusement parlours and play video games and pinball machines and bits and pieces. And you would see, um, I suppose, the melting pot. Of, of different cultures and, um, you know, the clashes of different races and, and also drugs, alcohol. You would see that happen all the time, whether a stabbing or someone glassed or violence of what have you. And, and then when all those things shut down and uh, the pubs would be open and the nightclubs and w- as young people, teenagers, we used to sit there drinking and wait until they ended to all hours of the morning to watch the fights on the streets. And the fights on the streets were very violent fights. And I know that uh, in our last segment, you mentioned a lot of those identities that you used to mix with are no longer with us. Uh, They died for all sorts of reasons. Mm. But uh, the violence that happens on the streets is sometimes, while we're seeing a a little bit of uh, an insight in the news when we watch it, uh, you know, the six o'clock news and there's violence on the streets, there's a lot more violence on the streets than what we even see on the news. 
Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. Because in that world, if if you're in that criminal world, even if there's a violent act done to you, well, one of the number one rules is is that you would never lag one of your friends in. So a lot of the things that you will see, stabbings and shootings and different things, people won't even say who's done it to them. And, of course, the issues of revenge on the streets, uh, that's a, a fairly strong impulse uh, when you're involved in a lot of these violent things. I think that would be a natural impulse when you're involved in those things because the, I, th- I think where I came from, the majority of people had problems, home problems and, and different things. So I think you felt hard done by for a start. And then when someone shafts you on top of that, I think it just pushes buttons. Tell me about the connections that you began to make with Christians because you tell in your book of a drop-in centre. You used to like to go along there and stir up the Christians who were manning the drop-in centre. Yeah, for sure. They they um, they took over sort of a, an empty shop and filled it with bits and pieces and coffee and, and some pool tables and what have you, table tennis tables. And when what I did, playing amusement games, were all closed, we would go there just to you know, stir Christians and tease them. And really in our hearts, I think what we wanted to do is prove uh, that who they were was not real. Uh, There's an issue there, isn't it, uh, of finding an authentic Christian who can actually share something with you that is meaningful to you in the time. And, uh, And so the stirring up of the Christians was a test of authenticity. Oh, no doubt, no doubt. In that same drop-in centre, they, they would always send people out on the streets to talk to people or what we would call a street witnessing. And that, and so we'd be hanging out at the amusement parlours and whatever have you. And they would come out and share with us about Christ and that. And my response would be I'd spit on them and say things about their mothers just to try and push the buttons to prove that they're not real, that they're fake, but they were real. It takes a lot of courage, doesn't it, to be a Christian who mans a drop-in centre when you recognise your own attitudes, when you can identify what you used to think about Christians in a drop-in centre or you know, people used to call them a coffee shop. Uh, but the way that Christians actually do put themselves out there into a position of danger uh, to be able to share the gospel with people like yourself. Well, I think that's the whole foundation of Christianity or, or, or following Christ is is to lay your life down uh, for for friends who Christ would call friends, and the friends that Christ reached out to were pretty much people that maybe as Christians today we find it hard to reach out to. It, it would be people that maybe were not in our church, or people that are excluded in society, or the ones that are on the news the most for certain things. They would be who Christ was hanging out with. So, yeah. Justin Gardner is our guest. The invitation is to be a part of our conversation today. Our talkback lines are open. Perhaps you've got a story of. How you treated Christians before you came to faith in Christ. You can call us. We'd like to hear from you. We're talking about reaching out to the brokenhearted this hour. The number to call is 1-800-880-876. 1-800-880-876. Treating Christians badly. There is a sense, isn't there, Justin, that Jesus warned believers who would follow him that people would not necessarily be nice. In fact, Jesus used very hard words when he said, people will hate you on my account. Do you recognize that in those days that there was an element of even anger and hatred towards the Christians? No doubt. I think it was natural. I think 
I think that um, there's been a lot of promises from fathers and mothers to children where I came from and even in my own life that didn't seem to come to pass. And when you've got other people coming and telling you using words like love and kindness and what have you, your experience of those were empty promises. And these people you don't even know when they're using that those sort of terminologies, oh, yeah, I think that rises up all sorts of anger. And that that's why the terminologies aren't as much as important as actually probably showing it. Okay, how deep did you go uh, in your own uh, depression before you, in fact, were open to hear some words of truth, words of life, words that would be meaningful to someone who is brokenhearted? Uh, I know you got to a point where you were considering suicide. Yeah, I um, I was probably open to, you know, I think the Christians, they were so courageous. And, and when I reacted in certain ways to them, um, it rung true to me the way their body language was and their eyes were. But I never showed them that. But they got through to my heart, but they would have never known by the look on my face. So then I was open to the gospel, but I was probably struggling with this. They look so clean. They seem so nice. Even if I do believe the cross had died for me, how could I ever become like that, especially when most of what I do is dishonest and illegal? How will I live if I become a Christian? It's almost like an impossible chasm to be able to cross, to say, well, here am I. I I know what I'm feeling like on the inside. You prefer to lash out in anger, spit in the face of the Christians, uh, but never seeing your own capacity to be able to be as nice and sometimes nice is not a good word to use, but to be as authentically good or righteous that we might say about Christians as you might like to have been. Well, uh, I suppose I would have never been able to picture um, me becoming like them because I'd never had anyone encourage me for a start. And even for them to say, God's got a plan for your life and those sorts of things. At the end of the day, truthfully, I didn't want to hear that about anyone else than my father, truthfully. For my father to say, you're awesome. My father to say, mate, you're going to be incredible. And I never got those words from my dad. So for them to use terminologies like Father God and Jesus and, you know, Father in heaven loves you, to me, they were very negative. As soon as I'd hear them, it was negative in my mind, and I found it hard to deal with. And so this blockage of having a father who was abusive, who was alcoholic, who didn't acknowledge your achievements, you could never identify the heavenly father as being like your father. Let's talk about how you came to, in fact, respond in a positive way. What happened with those Christians at the drop-in centre and the message that you began to gradually hear, having spat in the face of Christians before, what was it that brought you to a point where you could actually acknowledge that there's something here I need to hear? Well, I think I think um, for these guys, it was different people put in my path was probably like links in the chain to me crossing the line to faith and just the kindness and the authenticity um, that people showed me. And then when I reacted in certain ways, if I did that to anyone else on the street, they would react back. You know, they would react exactly the same spirit that I used, whether it was violent or degrading them or what have you, but the Christians didn't. And then I noticed that my family um, started to become Christians, and um, my sister became a Christian and started praying for me. And she would bring around, um, you know, shopping, you know, to where I lived and um, things like that. And I would see those acts of kindness that started softening my heart. Let's come back to what you anticipate when you are. Uh, angry, violent, depressed, even suicidal. 
uh, not really knowing how to actually cross the river to get to the other side to be what you don't even know what is good anyway because it's so hard, I think, in those times to be able to anticipate what your life might look like if you actually did have an encounter with God, with Jesus Christ. Oh, there's no doubt. It's it's the unknown. So even where you are, if you're not happy where you are, the unknown's scary. And to leave where you are, even though it might not be working for you, it's still a frightening thing to step leave that behind and step into something you don't know. And all you've got to go on is what someone else has told you and maybe what they've displayed. But then you've got a battle with inside you saying, I could never be like them. How did they become that way? But what I didn't realize is I was on the other side of the cross and I didn't realize making a decision for Christ, I would I would pass through the cross and everything that he's died to give me would enter me on the way through. Then on the other side of the cross, my sins are left behind. I have a fresh start at life. I never knew. So that's why it's a step of faith. When you look back on those early days, what you were feeling at the time, when you were resistant to and battling even against the idea that Christians could be sharing with you something, do you recognize now, having been through that, looking back, that there was in fact a way that God had his hand upon you, that there was some way that he was drawing you to himself? Yes, absolutely. I can. I, when I look back, I can see. I've, I've met people that had prayed for me for years today that I didn't even know were alive or exist, but they were prayer partners with my sister and different things. And now some of those people are my married. Uh, I married my, my wife. Her mother was one of those people. I'd never met her before in my life. And um, so I see that God was putting people um, praying for me, sending people out to show me kindness, send people out to challenge me. Um, and, um, yeah, I could just see it was all links in the chain as I look back, but I still felt like no one cared, but God did. He was, he was up to good when I was up to no good. And in that state of being brokenhearted, we're talking about being brokenhearted this hour, uh, when you're in that place of depression where you're thinking of taking your own life, you think that no one does care. Uh, there is a sense in which you've spiralled downwards. There is a hopelessness about that, isn't there? And and for people who may be even considering themselves listening to our conversation now, broken broken hearted, uh, trying to fill the void with the drugs and the alcohol and the sex and uh, the violence, uh, what's what are your thoughts on actually moving from broken heartedness to being healed? Well. When I was um, battling suicidal thoughts, um, they would rage through my mind thousands of times a day. And even for me to ask for help to somebody, number one is it felt I felt weak. I felt weak. And I had a, a big problem with asking people for anything or showing weakness because where I came from, you wouldn't show weakness because people would take advantage of it. But then number two is... I would say to myself, how could anybody switch off these thoughts thousands of times in my mind? My hands were shaking. I was vomiting. I couldn't eat. 18 years old, I was 53 kilos. Like today, as a grown man, I'm, I'm probably more like 100 kilos. So I, I, was, I looked like death. Who could help me? I would stand in doctor's offices screaming for them to give me something to take this pain away on the inside. They would give me drugs. I don't even know what they were, but they would numb the outside of me, but the inside was still like a volcano, still raging. So I didn't believe that anyone actually could help me. Our special guest this hour is Justin Gardner. He's the author of a book called Crime Son. We're telling Justin's story and your invitation to be a part of our conversation. We're talking about reaching out to the brokenhearted. Let's take some calls, Justin, before we go any further. Ellie is in the Northern Territory. Hello, Ellie. Welcome to 2020. Oh, hello, Neil. <laughs> Great to hear from you, Ellie. Yes, 
just oh, I just wanted to comment. Uh, hello, Jason. Um, hello. Yes, I just wanted to comment. I just think it's just amazing um, in my own life too, um, just to hear other people's testimonies as well about when we've gone from the broken-hearted place where it completely filled um, that God, uh, the journey, then when you reach out to a, a loving God, even at the place when you can't even, um, I think, even speak or even barely pray, um, that God will meet you in that absolutely broken place and uh, meet you there and uh, take you through and often a very, very long, long journey. But I, I, I just wanted to comment because um, for myself, um, the walk that I've had with the Lord um, through a couple of uh, uh, situations in my own life, there's, there's been two, two big um, situations in my own life where I felt that I was filled and um, as I'm getting on with life and uh, have recovered from those those two, those two very significant experiences, um, I believe the Lord is going to use the wisdom that I've gleaned out of that that He's that He showed me so much about Himself. Um, also gave me the understanding of what it is to be in that place, and then now from a heal, place of healing and wholeness to to be able to speak into the lives of others who, who, when I sometimes meet people, particularly women, particularly women who are in their broken place, to be able to speak with them. With Ellie, the when you've come from a place of being brokenhearted, do you think that you are better able to identify with those who are just like you, that they are brokenhearted oh. and in need of a saviour? Oh, absolutely. Absol- absolutely. And that's what I think that I wanted to just... Um, uh, just to bring out to the listeners is that uh, you know the, the good news is that that uh, if you know Jesus Christ, that uh, even in the hardest, most destructive place that was perhaps circumstances that was meant to destroy somebody, God can take you out and use it for good, and uh, that is my experience most definitely. And that uh, that when I speak to people and particularly women that have been incredibly, incredibly broken, deeply wounded, um, that I have the capacity now that, well, I've been told this, <laughs> but I feel the connection myself. I just feel the words flow um, with an empathy and an understanding of understanding that place. But being able to speak the words of encouragement, to speak the words that this too shall pass, if you know and and what to do and also to have the practicalities which is very much in my spirit as well that um i am so over <laughs> people who will just say there's not this, i think prayer is absolutely awesome and That's cannot right. be underestimated whatsoever however i love it to be matched up as well with um people coming beside and doing the physical things to help and assist people to get through the time sometimes when you do need someone to come beside yourself when you can't do it you have no strength left to do absolutely uh, that's great Ellie and uh, I just want to encourage you thanks for sharing um, today it's, uh, it takes a lot of courage to share and, and I just encourage you just keep sitting where people sit because you seem like you've got a heart that's very soft and you've got a story and you've got a testimony so be encouraged thanks for sharing that's great <laughs> Ellie, thanks for your call today. Let's take another caller. Jenny is on the phone. Hi, Jenny. Welcome to 2020. Hi, how are you guys going? Good, Jenny. Good, what do you like to share today? Um, a little bit about my life. Um, 
one of ten, and things started to happen. And then I started to feel that I needed to be a party girl and got myself in so much trouble that Mum always knew when I'd come home on the Sunday from Friday, I wasn't with my girlfriend until I was gone. Jenny, when you are in a place of depression, do you feel like partying is the way to overcome the depression or was partying the cause of it? Well, that's part of the cause because I was diagnosed with schizophrenic bipolar disorder and that made things even worse for me because I have at times wanted to get out of this mark. That's It's so yucky at times. You see, I'm, when I first met the Lord Jesus, I was 12. But I, I just knew he was there. I wanted a relationship. And it was getting that hard. I had been in three relationships which each relationship attempted suicide. But for three years I went through this depression. I would not go out my door. I didn't buy enough cigarettes, enough coffee. And at that time I had given away the alcohol. But it was, it still is a struggle in my life to get through. And I find Christians judge you so much. They go, well, why can't you quit smoking? And I said, well, that's between me and God. Mm. So, Jenny, when you talk about your own depression uh, and you say three instances of suicide, uh, that must be very, very tough. Let me ask Justin, in the circumstances that you were in, Justin, uh, people on the streets, people involved with crime gangs, uh, we talked about the early underbelly uh, yeah. side of Melbourne, uh, is there a sense in which people are often suffering levels of depression because of their involvement in these things? Yeah, now I look back, I would say absolutely. But at the time, I, I'd never even heard the word. So as a as a child or as a teenager, you wouldn't diagnose, you know, that you were suffering with depression, especially since you've escaped reality, reality so much of the time through alcohol or drugs. The, the moment you come down, you'd feel low, but you would, you would get high as quick as possible. So I would mask it, and probably most of my friends did too. Well, Jenny, I want to thank you for your input today on 2020. Appreciate you being part of it. Justin, let's get to a point where we talk about this transformation that happens when you have an encounter with Jesus Christ. Uh, tell us about that circumstance that led you to making a decision to put your faith and trust in him. Well, um, again, like I said, it would have been links in the chain uh, to my salvation, you know, me crossing the line and choosing a relationship with Christ um, through just kind Christians, courageous Christians, playing their part, doing bits and pieces. Some of those guys that may have never met me, they'd still think to this day it would have been a waste, but it wasn't. It wasn't. It touched something. It met a need in my life and it showed me kindness. But it was at the point when I was very suicidal and... Um, and everyone left me. No one wanted to be around me because I was unpredictable. I was very, very violent and um, just, yeah, I was a mess. But my mum reached out to me. She, she'd made a decision for Christ and, and was going to church. And she invited me to a church. It was probably about 25 minutes drive from where I lived. 
Um, I went with her when I walked into that church. It was it was packed with people. I've never seen that many people in a the room. They all looked so clean, so happy, and and it really messed with me on the inside. Um, I felt really low walking in there to tell the truth. But I wanted to sit at the back, but I'm so rebellious. I sat at the front. I sat in in reserved seating. I didn't know the church culture, but what what I know is this: if you, if you break a church culture that's not written on the wall, you'll feel it pretty quick. And <laughs> um, and I felt people. I felt rejection. I felt people's eyes burning into the back of me. And long story short, I left the church. Um, I was offended, uh, easily offended back then. And um, an old man um, shook my hand in the car park, and he apologised. He saw what happened. He was genuine. The handshake transferred the love and the genuineness in his heart to mine i didn't accept his invitation to go back in he said you can sit wherever you want and i left and that's when i went home suicidal and i was going to you know uh, put myself to sleep that night and not wake up again but instead of doing that i called out the christ and i said jesus i've done it long enough my way um I'll do it your way. All I want is you to do is forgive me. If you would forgive me, um, I don't want any of this materialistic stuff that I lived for back then. If you would forgive me, I'll do anything you ask me to do. And and I and I know that I got saved right there. Hope came into my life. I still had suicidal thoughts, but I was saved. Then I picked up the phone. It must have been twelve o'clock, one o'clock in the morning, and I rang the first church that came to mind. Now that was the one that just scarred me, just rejected me. And um, at that time, the phone picked up. And it was that same man, the same love was coming across the phone. He was a caretaker in the church, so he answered the phone. Long story short, he made an appointment for me to the pastor the next day. And here I am 18 years later, I'm the senior pastor of that same church. Mm. Justin, when you're in that low point, when you're at the depths of depression, when you are suicidal, is it the case that people who might be listening to our conversation recognize they've been in that place too? Is it a natural thing to think, is there a God? If there's a God, will he help me if I call out to him? Uh, was with your connections there to the church when you were at this point, a low point in your life, were you thinking, well, if there's a last chance, I wonder if there's a God? Yeah, and I think that uh, for me, I was very blessed. Um, at the time, I didn't think it was a blessing, like most things in my life, Um God's uh, word doesn't return void. So even as a young child, my parents, you know, dragged me to church, and I didn't understand anything that went on there other than this. I, I had a belief that God was real and that the devil was real, and it was those two things. Now here I am, suicidal Christians in between, sowing seeds of love and kindness and courage, and I'm suicidal. And there's a belief in the foundation of my heart that God is real, and I knew that if I um, killed myself. I knew that I wasn't sure what was going to happen, but I, uh, through my belief that I was taught, is that I, I shouldn't kill myself. So instead of that, I called out to him. I called out to him. At what point did you recognize that you had made a decision that was life-changing? Oh, at that very moment, I felt hope come into my life. I, I'd never experienced it before. Just inside, I had the same problems. They didn't change. Uh, my bank account uh, didn't change. My debts didn't go away. Uh, the suicidal thoughts didn't go away, but in my heart of hearts, there was hope, and I knew that I was right with God. I knew I was. So. What power does hope have? Is it like all of a sudden you feel an inner strength? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think you can live a second without it, and that's what I was losing. With the suicidal thoughts, I was losing the hope to live. And with that prayer, it was one simple prayer um, that I prayed to Christ. That it was like that hope tank got filled again. So I had all these problems, but I but I had hope, and I knew that 
Um, he was with me. And to this day, that's still the same thing that gets me through whatever I face, knowing that I'm not alone in it. I've got a God that cares. He's present. And when I, you know, even when I'm up to no good, uh, you know, he's still up to good for my life. It's been the same always. You know, you have a bad day. He doesn't. He's still good towards me. And he gives me um, what I need, not what I deserve. Neil Johnson with you on 2020. Our special guest this hour, Justin Gardner. He's the author of a book called Crime Son. We've been talking about the brokenhearted. Uh, We've heard some stories of brokenheartedness today. We've been talking about that encounter that comes when you recognise that you are brokenhearted and you wonder what there might be. Is there any hope on the horizon? And in those last moments, even before you talk about suicide, is there a God? And we have heard uh, some stories today about people who have come from a brokenhearted position. Justin, when you have people who come to your church and they respond to the language that you use, the stories that you tell, uh, you recognize there's that same brokenheartedness in them that you experienced yourself. When you bring people to a point where they want to make a change, they want an encounter with Jesus Christ, what do you say to them? Well, for me, um, for me, I, I, I think that um, you know my belief uh, started with this: that that God was real, and that um, that He sent His Son to die for me, and no one had done anything for me like that. So that revelation that that God loved me that much, that He basically gave me His vote, that He sent His Son, His His one and only, to die in my place to pay my price and, and basically exchanged accounts, my account of, of mess and, and sin and, uh, and he exchanged the account of his account of righteousness and perfection and he exchanged accounts and he became sin on the cross for me, gave me his account of righteousness that when the Father in heaven looks at me, he sees me through uh, the eyes of his son or he sees me through the shed blood of his son and he sees perfection the way Jesus was. Now, that's the greatest gift in the universe. You can't earn it, you can't pay for it, but it's on offer and it's received by faith. And there'd be people perhaps listening to our conversation today who are saying, you know, I'm in a place of brokenheartedness and I need to have this encounter with Jesus Christ. I need to know what it is uh, to have him take my place. You know, the ransom is paid. He's the substitution for what I really deserve as a sinner. I wonder whether uh, we might even uh, take a moment to say a short prayer. And perhaps uh, for those who are at a point uh, where they really desire something different in their life, healing for their own brokenheartedness. We might even just uh, say a short prayer that might uh, introduce those ones listening to that love of God. I wonder whether you'd like to lead us. Yeah, well, I would love to do that. Um, I'll say one thing is this. Going to church is a great way to find out more about Jesus. Going to church is a great way to find out more about God. Going to church is a great way to also find out more about people, Christians, how they're not perfect and they make mistakes and they forgive each other and they'll step on each other's uh, toes at times. Um, and they're people uh, that are a work in progress and it's a, it's a community. Now, but going to church won't make you a Christian. Making you a Christian is a choice or becoming a believer in, in, in Jesus. And it's as simple as this. It's believing that he um, died for you, he rose again, 
and he is offering complete forgiveness of sins, a wipe of your old account and a fresh start that you can spend the rest of your eternity with him. So the simple prayer that I would pray is this, Lord Jesus, I believe that you died for me. I believe that you have paid the price for me to forgive me all of my sins, and I receive that. I put my belief and my trust in you, and I hand over my life to you. I take my hands off the steering wheel, and I say, you can take over as Savior and Lord, and I'll follow you for all of my days. Justin, people will have joined in that prayer And as you say, linking with your local church is a way that you can link with real people Not that we're not real here on the radio But real people who can sit with you and talk through those issues uh, Even reinforce uh, the prayer that we've just prayed A prayer of turning away from those things in this world Of receiving Jesus as Lord and Saviour it is important to be planted in a local church because we could go on for a lot more, more time uh, talking about how God led you through into Bible college and into now a ministry career. You're the senior pastor of the Destiny Centre Christian Church there in Hopper's Crossing. Uh, that's where people in Melbourne could find you. But it's an important thing to get planted in a local church. Yes, absolutely it is. I love the church. You know, coming from someone that had a broken family, I can, um, you know, go to a, a church family of all sorts of people People of all walks of life and different nationalities and truthfully everything that good has come out of my life has come through the local church people have mentored me and loved me and prayed for me and helped me helped me through bible college and those different things and opportunities open so i think the local church is a rich place people need to find a great church to grow in the things of god justin's the author of a book called crime son and Justin Gardner, just a pleasure having you today here on 2020 and uh, look forward to having you back on another day. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Neil. Like what you've just heard? There's more great podcasts or you can listen to us live at vision.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener supported. Your donation of any amount will help us continue connecting faith to life. Learn more or donate today at vision.org.au.